0: Alice L. Baumgardner is an assistant professor of history at the University of Southern California. She received a master's degree from Oxford, where she was a Rhodes Scholar, and her PhD in history from Yale University. Her first book, South to Freedom, she explains why Mexico abolished slavery and how its increasingly radical anti-slavery policies fueled the crisis in the United States. This book has been praised by the New York Times Book Review, Smithsonian Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, Foreign Affairs, and many others. I'm so glad we are to hear more about it tonight. Please join me in welcoming Alice Baumgartner. Thank you so much Roger for that very kind introduction, as well as to Victoria and Doris who have been working behind the scenes to bring this all together. And finally to everyone in the audience who is joining today from as far as Australia as I learned in the chat. And it's really just such a pleasure to be able to talk to you today, today about my book, South to Freedom, Runaway Slaves to Mexico and the Road to Civil War. And most of the time when I tell people about this book, the first response usually is, I had no idea that enslaved people escaped to Mexico. And the truth is I didn't know either. In the fall of 2012, I went to Northeastern Mexico to do research on a different topic about violence on the US-Mexico border in the mid 19th century. And I was expecting to find a lot of evidence of the type of violence you would expect smuggling, filibustering, uh, raiding of various sorts, and I found that evidence. But over the course of my research, I also kept coming across documents about slaveholders from the United States coming to Mexico to try to kidnap their fugitive slaves and facing both uh, legal and violent resistance from Mexican citizens and local officials. At the time, I did not know and really didn't expect to find local Mexican authorities protecting fugitive slaves, sometimes at the risk of their own lives, as we'll see later in the talk. I didn't even know that fugitive slaves were escaping to Mexico, like many of the people who I've talked to about this project since. But the more that I worked in state and local archives, the more evidence that I found that enslaved people were heading to the South in search of freedom. Some of those enslaved people received help from a variety of sources from Germans, from Mexicans, from free Blacks, from ship captains, but most escaped by their own ingenuity. They acquired Ford's travel passes. They, in one instance, disguised themselves as white men using wigs that they had fashioned from horsehair in pitch. They stole firearms, horses, skiffs, dirk knives, fur hats, 12 gold watches and a diamond breast pin, and then they disappeared. And their stories, for the most part, have disappeared too. And one of the reasons for that, I think, is that reconstructing this story requires in-depth research in archives on both sides of the border. And this project took me to 28 different archives in three different countries, some of which were so infrequently visited that it attracted headlines in local newspapers uh, that I was even there in the first place. There's really no, uh, no news coverage that made me more, more um, pleased than this one, um, which is from a local newspaper in Northeastern Mexico. But I think another reason why this story has been overlooked is that most US historians assume that Mexico's government and its citizenry weren't actually that committed to anti-slavery and that when they were pressured by the United States that those anti-slavery laws fell by the wayside. And if that's true, if, Mexico's citizens really weren't that committed to anti-slavery, if the promise of freedom in Mexico was illusory, then this is a small local story that doesn't really contribute to any of our larger understandings of abolition in the Americas or the coming of the Civil War. The problem with that conclusion, as I learned over the course of my research, was that the Mexican government did not retreat from its anti-slavery positions under pressure from the United States. In fact, quite the contrary. Mexico abolished slavery in 1837. And if you're thinking, I thought it was 1829, don't worry, I will explain why I think 1837 is the correct date. And it didn't stop there. In 1857, 20 years later, Mexico enshrined abolition in its very constitution. And it promised freedom to all enslaved people who set foot on its territory, a really radical promise that was known as the freedom principle. Mexico's laws were incredibly radical. And just to emphasize how radical they were, I want to compare them for a brief moment to the anti-slavery laws you might be more familiar with. The northern states, as I think everyone who grew up in the United States learns, either abolished slavery or passed gradual emancipation laws in the decades after the American Revolution. But the Fugitive Slave Clause of the Constitution provided for the return of slaves who had escaped across state lines. And this meant that the Northern states, despite their promise of abolition and freedom, could not actually promise legal freedom to enslaved people who escaped across the Mason-Dixon line. We see a similar sort of trend in Canada. Canada as part of the British Empire abolished slavery in 1833 and most of the time Canadian officials really did a lot to make sure that they were protecting enslaved people who escaped to Canada. But Canada had signed an extradition treaty with the United States and they, they extradited criminals who sometimes happened to be fugitive slaves as in one case in 1842 when an enslaved person escaped to Canada and en route stole a beaver overcoat, a racing mare and a gold watch. Canada, in other words, also hadn't adopted the freedom principle. The only country in the Americas that had passed laws as radical as Mexico's was the former French colony of Saint-Domingue which had revolted against French rule in 1791 and founded the Republic of Haiti. Haiti abolished slavery in 1804 and it adopted the freedom principle in its constitution of 1816. And historians over the past three or so decades have shown how Haiti's anti-slavery policies destabilized slavery in the neighboring islands of Cuba and Jamaica and how it scared slaveholders in the United States. but but Haiti lay 500 miles by sea from the southernmost tip of Florida. Mexico, by contrast, directly bordered the U.S. South. And this proximity to spaces of mass chattel slavery meant that Mexico's anti-slavery policies would have profound consequences for its neighbors to the North. The escape of enslaved people to Mexico, in other words, is a small window into a much bigger story. And today I want to tell just a part of that story of Mexico's rise as an anti-slavery public, republic, of the ways in which abolition shaped the lives of enslaved people who, were, who lived in Texas and Louisiana, And finally, of the forgotten significance of Mexican abolition to slavery and the sectional controversy in the United States. The story of Mexican abolition begins usually on September 16th, 1829, when Mexico's then president, Vicente Guerrero, himself of African descent, pretty amazing that Mexico had its first black president in 1829 and we had our first black president in 2008, Um, But on September 16th, 1829, Guerrero issued a decree that abolished slavery across Mexico. And historians usually date abolition in Mexico to this decree. And they argue that the policy passed largely without comment because black slavery was simply no longer important to Mexico's national economy. Slavery had indeed dwindled in importance in Mexico by 1829. It originally took root in New Spain, as Mexico was known when it was still under Spanish rule. At the end of the 16th century, after a series of epidemics decimated Mexico's indigenous population. Between 1580 and 1640, New Spain imported more African slaves than any other colony in the Western hemisphere, except Brazil. And you can see that increase in the enslaved population in this chart tracing the slave population in New Spain. But a drop in sugar prices and a recovery of the indigenous population put black slavery on a path of decline. And by the time that Mexicans took up arms against Spain in 1810, black slaves numbered only nine to 10,000. At the time that Mexico's enslaved population was declining, anti-slavery sentiment was on the rise. And there are three factors that are central to this development. First, the war against Spain had forged a link in the popular imagination between slavery and colonialism, individual emancipation and national independence. And enslaved people themselves helped to reinforce that connection by filing suit in Mexico's courts throughout the 1820s Arguing that they could not be held as slaves in a newly independent republic because slavery was antithetical to its founding principles. Second, championing anti slavery helped to distinguish Mexico from Spain, which was an important task for any fledgling republic. The United States was doing the same thing, trying to distinguish itself from Great Britain. And anti slavery was one way in which they could really make that contrast quite stark because Spain continued to permit human bondage in its colonial possessions, particularly in the island of Cuba. And so anti-slavery helped to cast Mexico in a different, more enlightened mold. Third, remember that Mexico is the neighbor of the United States. And anti-slavery in Mexico helps to differentiate Mexico's independence movement from its more renowned forebear, the American Revolution. Mexican politicians love to predict at, that, that m- the American Revolution would be forgotten because of the contradiction between its professed ideals and the reality that slavery continued, particularly in the Southern States after the American Revolution. And Mexico's leaders promised that their country would actually make good on those principles uh, by ending slavery. And it did that or tried to do that in a number of ways. In 1821, the Mexican government abolished all distinctions of race and class. It's an important point that we'll return to later in the talk. And in 1824, Mexico prohibited the importation of enslaved people to Mexico, which they hoped would bring slavery to an end in the country, given that the enslaved population was so small. They thought that it wasn't going to naturally reproduce without exterior, um, more supply coming in from other countries. But the anti-slavery sentiment in Mexico really manifested itself most clearly at the state level, in much the same way that it manifested itself so clearly in the United States at the state level. Between 1821 and 1827, seven of Mexico's 19 states abolished slavery outright, and you can see them highlighted here in purple. Nine states also decreed that the children born of enslaved people would be freed at birth or when they reached the age of a majority, what was known as a free womb law. These laws obviously didn't abolish slavery outright, but like the gradual emancipation laws adopted in states like Pennsylvania, Connecticut, Rhode Island, New York, and New Jersey, these laws did promise to end human bondage within a generation or two. So returning to 1829 and Guerrero's decree, Given that the enslaved population was declining in Mexico, Mexico, and given the popular enthusiasm for anti-slavery, it's not unreasonable for historians to have assumed that President Guerrero's decree would have been welcomed if not applauded. But in fact, the opposite happened. From the sugar-producing south came predictions of economic ruin. Slaveholders in Chiapas, you can see highlighted here, demanded immediate compensation for the enslaved people who had been freed. The town council of Cordoba, Veracruz, warned that the decree would cause the ruin of this population that labors exclusively in the cane fields. Meanwhile, Yucatan seceded from the Mexican Confederation Its legislature lambasted the national government for assuming powers that rightly belong to the states, and among its grievances in that realm was the fact that President Guerrero had abolished slavery, which the legislature called, quote, a cruel attack on property, close quote, that they claimed disadvantaged Yucatan more than any other state in the Mexican Federation. Now, as all of you who have taken any US history classes will know, there was one other province of Mexico that disputed Yucatan's claim. And that was the province of Tejas, which was then part of a state in Mexico known as Coahuila y Tejas. And in the 1820s, Anglo-American colonists from the United States had started to settle in Tejas hoping to convert the province into profitable cotton plantations with the help of enslaved labor. The threat of a revolt among those Anglo colonies in Texas was so great that President Guerrero actually decided to exempt the province from his decree. So there's this surge of protest against President Guerrero's decree and it ultimately ends as these protesters are hoping. In 1831, Mexico's Congress abrogated Guerrero's decree abolishing slavery, along with many other decrees that Guerrero had issued. The revocation of Guerrero's decree meant that slavery didn't end in 1829. And the protests over that decree suggest that the decline of Black slavery didn't actually guarantee its end in Mexico, as many historians have claimed. So if Mexico's anti-slavery laws weren't simply the result of a declining slave population, then when and why was slavery actually abolished? Although slavery was declining nationally, it remained important regionally. It's hard to give exact numbers of how many enslaved people remained in the regions of Mexico, and part of the reason for that is because of that law passed in 1821 that abolished all distinctions of caste in Mexico. Obviously, that law didn't get rid of racism in Mexico, continued in various forms thereafter. But it did mean that all official documentation, like this census from Musquiz Coahuila in 1827, that it didn't include any information about race or caste. And for those of you who speak Spanish, you can see that this census includes the name, the age, the employment, whether someone was literate or not, but nothing about race or ethnicity. And so it's really hard to tell how many enslaved people from these censuses, from these official documents. So we have to rely on anecdotal evidence. And that anecdotal evidence suggests that the enslaved population in Mexico was concentrated around um, the sugar producing South and the cotton growing North. The two regions where we saw the most complaints, the most um, uprisings against Guerrero's decree. The fact that slavery remained so concentrated in these regions meant that the Mexican government couldn't abolish slavery immediately across the country without risking a revolt in these uh, sort of peripheral uh, regions of Mexico in the North and in the South. Although Mexico would not abolish slavery outright across the nation, that did not mean that the Mexican government condoned human bondage. State governments abolished slavery where it was feasible and adopted gradual emancipation laws where it was not. The national government, as I mentioned in 1824, forbade enslaved people from being imported into the country, a law that posed a major threat to those Anglo-American colonists who were immigrating to the colony of Texas with ambitions of using enslaved labor to grow cotton. The Anglo-American colonists tried a number of different techniques to circumvent those laws. In the 1820s, they forced enslaved people to sign indentured contracts for periods of up to 90 years or lifelong indentures. And labor contracts under Mexican law were, even if they were signed in a foreign country, were deemed valid. But that law was not meant to allow the signing of these lifelong indentured contracts. And so the legislature of Coahuila y Tejas in 1832 passed a law that limited the terms of those contracts to no more than 10 years. And that law was retroactive. So it meant that all of those lifelong indentured contracts were no longer valid, and that the enslaved people who had been imported under those contracts were, had a claim to freedom. And enslaved people did claim their freedom under, their law, under those laws, and the Mexican government tried to support them in that effort. In 1834, Mexico's vice president even went so far as to dispatch a secret agent to Tejas with instructions, quote, to seek by every possible and prudent means to make it known to the slaves who have been brought into the republic in circumvention of the law, that the law gives them freedom by the mere act of stepping on the territory of the republic. I am going really fast over a very complicated history. But the Anglo-American colonists recognized as they tried and failed to circumvent these laws that the Mexican government was not going to just kind of roll over and let them import their slaves even though it was against the law. And their ability, uh, the ability of the Anglo-American colonists in texas to circumvent this um, anti-slavery legislation was diminished considerably, when President Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana overturned Mexico's federalist constitution in favor of a more centralist system and government. In response to these changes, the Anglo-American colonists in Texas revolted in 1835. And in 1836, on April 21st, 1836, Texas forces defeated the Mexican army at the Battle of San Jacinto, securing the independence of Texas, at least for the moment. Now, like the United States, when the Southern states seceded in 1860 and 1861, Mexico refused to recognize the independence of Texas. Instead, they claimed that they were going to launch an expedition to reconquer Texas in much the same way that the Lincoln administration responded to the secession of the Confederates. Given that Mexico still laid claim to the seceded province of Texas, It came as a surprise and an affront when on March 3rd, 1837, a mere 10 months after the end of the Texas Revolution, the U.S. government recognized Texas's independence. It extended diplomatic recognition to this upstart republic. Six weeks later, Mexico's Congress voted to abolish slavery without exception, and the timing was no coincidence. The secession of Texas eliminated the largest slaveholding state from the Mexican Federation. And because Texas had revolted, the Mexican government was really under no obligation to compensate slaveholders for the loss of their freed enslaved people. So the financial costs of implementing abolition were smaller than before, and the benefits appeared much greater. Defending Liberty, of course, acted on that anti-slavery sentiment, which had been existent in Mexico since the 1820s, if not earlier. And we can see that anti-slavery sentiment in this playbill for La Cabaña del Tío Tomás. And I don't think you even need to know Spanish to guess that that is the Uncle Tom's Cabin, the famous anti-slavery novel, which had been turned into a play, translated into Spanish, and had a very successful run in Mexico. So by abolishing slavery, the Mexican government is acting on that popular anti-slavery sentiment um, and helping to actually have Mexico find victory in defeat, that although the Texans had defeated the Mexican army, that Mexico could stand upright before the world as this um, bastion of liberty in a way that the Republic of Texas, which had passed a constitution protecting slavery, could not. The position also galvanized international support for Mexico, from Edinburgh, Scotland to Westchester, New York, anti-slavery societies condemned Texas as a, quote unquote, loathsome republic that had exercised its political liberty in defense of slavery. And we can see that really clearly in this um, pamphlet which shows the free eagle of Mexico grappling the cold-blooded viper tyranny or Texas. The abolition of slavery in Mexico just confirmed this idea that abolitionists had been promoting as early as the Texas Revolution, saying that it really was this fight to uphold slavery. The abolition of slavery bolstered morale among Mexicans, it galvanized international support for Mexico, but it also served a larger geopolitical purpose. As the news of Mexico's abolition spread, Texans complained that their enslaved people displayed, quote, a very refractory disposition, close quote. And they blamed the Mexican government, as you can see in this article here, for sending emissaries, quote, to excite an insurrection they were hoping that by that this abolition policy could lead enslaved people in texas to revolt or escape and by as a result of that revolt or escape to undermine the independence of this fledgling republic the mexican government is still hoping that there might be some way to bring texas back into the national fold Mexico's anti-slavery policies, in other words, were a powerful weapon in the hands of a weak government. They weren't overtly belligerent. The Northern States in Canada had also abolished slavery, but these policies boosted morale. They attracted international support and they accrued potential military allies in enslaved people. In the words of one Mexican diplomat, anti-slavery was quote, the rock that could shatter the clay foot of the United States. This was the way to turn this David and Goliath situation in favor of Mexico. So what did this mean for enslaved people living in Texas and Louisiana? After Mexico abolished slavery, enslaved people responded by escaping in even larger numbers than they had before. And two options awaited most runaways in Mexico. The first was to join Mexico's military colonies, a series of outposts along Mexico's northern frontier which defended against native peoples and foreign invaders. And you can see um, in this map here the state of Coahuila. It sort of should be in the center of your screen. That is the state where most enslaved people who joined the military colonies went. Life in these military colonies was not easy. Few of the fugitive slaves who arrived at those military colonies spoke Spanish. They were unaccustomed even to Mexican food. There are some um, documents talking about how they would scrape beans from the tortillas that Mexicans gave them when they arrived. And perhaps most importantly, By joining the military colonies, they had, of course, to take up arms in defense of Mexico to defend that border, and the demands of military service constrained their autonomy. Fathers, husbands, sons had to take up arms at a moment's notice whenever they were needed. But their military service also earned them the respect of Mexican authorities who praised them consistently for their willingness and desire to defend Mexico against foreign invaders of all varieties. And the fact that they had taken up arms in defense of Mexico also helped to give them a claim to citizenship in Mexico, unlike in the United States in the 1850s, people of color were... Eligible for citizenship in Mexico. And we have evidence to suggest that they did, in fact, that enslaved people who escaped to Mexico were actually taking advantage of their citizenship rights in Mexico, which was incredibly important because, especially for those of you who are who study the Civil War or are interested in emancipation, you'll know that enslaved people were looking not just for freedom, but also for belonging, for political, political citizenship. So, though military service helped ensure the freedom of former slaves, that freedom, of course, came at a cost, a risk to one's life in the heat of battle and participation in Mexico's brutal campaigns against native peoples. But not every runaway joined the colonies. Some settled in cities like Malamoros, which you can see on the map just beneath Brownsville, Texas. Matamoros had a growing black population of merchants and carpenters, bricklayers, and manual laborers who hailed from as far as Haiti and the British Caribbean to the United States. Others didn't go to cities. Instead, they hired themselves out to local landowners in more rural areas who were constantly in need of extra hands. These runaways encountered a different set of challenges. Those who worked on haciendas and in households were often the only people of African descent on the payroll, leaving them little choice but to assimilate into their new communities. Most learned Spanish, many changed their names adopting Spanish names. And they also sometimes encountered labored practices that bore some of the hallmarks of chattel slavery. In Northern Mexico, hacienda owners enjoyed the right to physically punish their employees meeting out corporal punishment as harsh as any on plantations in the United States. Although it is also important to note that in 1852, this legislature of Coahuila actually took that right away from um, employers, that they could no longer whip their servants. In parts of Southern Mexico, such as Yucatan and Chiapas, which you can see at the bottom of the map, debt peonage tied laborers to plantations as effectively as violence. But in contrast to the southern United States where slaveholders could essentially do 99% of what they wanted to do without suffering any legal consequences. Laborers in Mexico enjoyed a number of legal protections. They could file suit when their employers lowered their wages or added unreasonable charges to their account. They could also sue in cases of mistreatment, as one laborer named Juan Castillo did in 1860 after his employer hit him, whipped him, and ran him over with a horse. His employer in the lawsuit claimed or admitted to, quote, a certain excess of anger, close quote. But the greatest threat that runaway slaves faced in Mexico was not their new employers, but their former masters. On August 20th, 1850, Manuel Luis del Fiero stepped outside his house in Reynosa, Tamaulipas, a town just across the border from McAllen, Texas, and here you can see a slightly later photo of that plaza principal in Reynosa. The night was hot and a band was playing in the plaza, and as Manuel Luis del Fiero stood listening to the music, two foreigners approached him asking if he wanted to join them at the concert. Del Fiero politely refused their invitation. He was an old man, and he didn't really give the incident much thought until that night when he was woken from his sleep by the sound of a woman screaming. Del Fiero hurried toward the commotion, and in one of the rooms of the house, he came across the two foreigners, one weaving a pistol at his maid, Matilda Hennis, who he later testified, quote, had been held as a slave in the United States, close quote. Hennis had belonged to a planter in the United States named William Cheney, who owned a plantation near Cheneyville, Louisiana, which you can see on this map here. And what's interesting and and good for historians here is that Cheneyville was not far from where Solomon Northrup, free black man who was kidnapped from the North and sold into slavery, was sold. uh, Solomon Northrup was at a plantation in a neighboring parish. And when Solomon Northrup arrived at that plantation, he heard that several enslaved people had been hanged in the area for having planned, quote, a crusade to Mexico. And as Northrup recalled in his memoir, 12 Years a Slave, the plot was, quote, a subject of general and unfailing interest in every slave hut on the bayou, close quote. So from Solomon Northrup's memoir, we have some sense that the enslaved people in that area knew about the promise of freedom in Mexico. And at some point, although we don't know when or how, Matilda Henes acted on that knowledge, escaping from Cheneyville and making her way to Reynosa, where she found work in Manuel Luis del Fiero's household. To del Fiero, Matilda Henes was not just a runaway. As a servant, she was a member of his household. And although he was an old man, he defended her in the room where he came across the two men, he took hold of his gun while his wife called for help from the balcony. One of the kidnappers escaped before help could arrive, but another didn't. And that kidnapper turned out to be none other than Hennessy's former owner, William Cheney. In Mexico, Cheney found that he could not treat people of African descent with impunity as he did in the United States. Cheney was arrested And While he sat in prison, Judge Juxto Trevino of the district of northern Tamaulipas began an investigation into his attempted kidnapping. Del Fiero's actions were not unusual, and I think that's the point that is most astonishing and most interesting about what's going on in Mexico during this time. In 1851, the townspeople in a small village in northern Coahuila took up arms to stop a slave catcher named Warren Adams from attempting to kidnap a black family. Later that year, the Mexican army posted a sizable force and two field artillery pieces on the Rio Grande to stop a group of nearly 200 Americans from crossing the river ostensibly to seize fugitive slaves. In 1852, four townspeople from Guerrero Coahuila, which you can also see on that map, chased after a slaveholder from the United States who had kidnapped a black man from their village. They found the slaveholder who pulled out a six shooter, but one of the townspeople drew faster, killing the kidnapper. Unable to bring the kidnapper to court, the councilman brought his corpse to a judge in Guerrero who certified that the man was in fact dead, quote, for not having responded when spoken to and other cadaverous signs, close quote. The protection that Mexican citizens provided was significant because the national authorities in Mexico City simply didn't have the resources to enforce many of the country's most basic policies. And Mexico's anti-slavery laws might have ended up as a dead letter if not for the ordinary people of all races who risked their lives to help protect fugitive slaves. As Mexico became known as a refuge for runaways, the landscape of slavery in the South Central United States began to shift. Slaveholders no longer wanted to bring their enslaved people to South Texas for fear that they would just escape to Mexico. In fact, that large swath of territory in the southern reaches of Texas was essentially deemed non-slaveholding because of the risk. The threat was so bad that slaveholders demanded that diplomats from the United States pressure their Mexican counterparts to sign an extradition treaty to return fugitive slaves. But negotiations failed in 1850 and 1851 and 1853 and 1857. Mexico's extradition policies were, Mexico would never agree to an extradition policy and the effects of that are perhaps best seen in the 1860 census from Brownsville, Texas. Brownsville is right on the border with the Rio Grande. And we can see from the census that there are only seven enslaved people who are in that town. Really a testament to that fear of bringing enslaved people anywhere near Mexico. And that fear really was justified because in column six of that census, you see the number of enslaved people who are listed as quote, fugitives from the state. Four of the seven enslaved people in Brownsville, Texas were fugitives from the state. Presumably fugitives to Mexico as the nearest place where they could escape from. The freedom that Mexico promised would threaten slavery not just in Texas and Louisiana, but also at the very heart of the Union. The trouble began in 1845 when the United States agreed to annex the Republic of Texas and the trouble only accelerated a year later when the United States provoked a war with Mexico. James K Polk, who was president at the time, made clear that he intended to pay for that war by seizing territory from Mexico. And the question soon arose about what the status of slavery would be in those territories that Polk intended to take from Mexico. On August 8, 1846, just months after the war started, a U.S. congressman from Pennsylvania named David Wilmot proposed that slavery be excluded from any of the territories that the United States might acquire from Mexico. The so-called Wilmot Proviso, which you might remember from your U.S. history classes, threw the issue of slavery into the very center of the political arena, leading historian Eric Foner, to argue rightly, I think, that this was the event in US history that seemed to lead almost inevitably to sectional controversy and civil war. Despite its significance, the Wilmot proviso remains something of a puzzle to historians and students alike. Why would someone like David Wilma, a Northern Democrat who had never given any sign of anti-slavery convictions, make such a proposal in the first place? It's a little bit like Ted Cruz sub- suggesting that we have an assault rifle rifle ban. It was a huge uh, sort of 360 in in, um, political convictions. But to really understand why this is so confusing, for those of you who might not be up on what the Democratic Party stood for in 1846, let me give you a brief summary. The Democrats stood for the Jeffersonian ideal of limited government. They wanted no internal improvements, what we now might call infrastructure. They didn't want a national bank, and they didn't want the federal government to interfere with state institutions like slavery. This political philosophy attracted slaveholders who didn't want the government interfering with their quote-unquote property, as well as people who really didn't have that much of a stake in slavery, but who genuinely believed in limited government. And David Wilmot, who was from Pennsylvania, belonged to the latter category. In 1845, He, like the rest of the Democratic Party, had voted in favor of the annexation of Texas as a slave state. But now, a year later, in 1846, he was proposing an amendment to prohibit slaveholders from bringing their enslaved people to any territories seized from Mexico. What was going on? Historians have proposed a number of explanations that I won't go into here but can explain in the Q&A. But I think that none are really as compelling as the explanation that David Wilmot and his supporters gave. Wilmot argued that the federal government had no power to interfere with slavery where it existed. And it was for that reason that Wilmot had supported the annexation of Texas as a slave state, because as he put it, quote, slavery had already been established there. To interfere with it would interfere with the fifth amendment of the constitution. But Wilmot said, If the federal government lacked the power to abolish slavery where it existed, as in Texas, then it also lacked the power to establish slavery where it had been abolished, as in Mexico. David Wilmot knew that the Mexican government had abolished slavery in 1837. And so he argued that any land ceded to the United States as a result of the Mexican-American War would enter the Union as free territories. Wilmot argued, that he wasn't actually changing his tune at all. In fact, he was doing what his party had long insisted to, quote, let slavery alone. Southern congressmen were not mollified by this explanation because they recognized that the Wilmot Proviso threatened to upset the balance between North and South. If the territory ceded from Mexico were closed to slavery, then basically all of the Western territories that remained would be closed to slaveholders. Mexican abolition, in other words, forced Mexico or the United States Congress to make what seemed like an impossible choice. They could either admit the former Mexican territories as free states, which would basically mean that the southern states would be outnumbered in the Senate and they would be unable to block offensive uh, legislation to them, which is unacceptable to the southern congressmen or they could re-establish slavery where it had already been abolished, which would create a dangerous precedent for federal intervention with respect to slavery. Southern politicians really didn't like either of these choices, and so they insisted that Mexico really couldn't have abolished slavery, it was against their constitution, didn't they have indentured servitude there anyways, and so we see congressmen coming to the floors of the House and the Senate Reading Mexico's original laws. My favorite instance of this is Senator Thomas Hart Benton of Missouri. Remember, Missouri was a slave state, and he read Mexico's laws in the original Spanish. He read, Ninguno es esclavo en el territorio de la nación. Another congressman complained, quote, that the Senate cannot understand a word of what he reads. And just so you guys don't have the same fate, he basically is reading from Mexico's law saying no one is a slave in the territory of the nation. The introduction of the Wilmot proviso turned the slow burn of sectionalism into a blaze. But Thomas Hart Benton of Missouri actually saw a solution. He accepted, that Mexico's laws prohibiting slavery remained in force and that Congress had no right under the democratic interpretation of the Constitution to overturn those laws. But he argued that if those laws remained in force and Congress couldn't overturn them, that the Wilma proviso was redundant. It was a thing of nothing, an empty provision, a cloud without rain. Just a way to sort of uh, drive up sectional controversies that Mexico's laws abolishing slavery would prohibit slavery in the territory regardless of whether Congress passed a proviso. And Benton's argument convinced many of those Northeastern Democrats who had broken with party lines by voting for the Wilmot provisos included people like Richard Broadhead of Pennsylvania, as well as James W. Bradbury of Maine, who said, quote, the proviso is now there prohibiting slavery throughout their entire extent because those Mexican laws already existed were still in effect. Northerners believed that slavery could not extend to the former Mexican territories where human bondage had been abolished and it didn't matter whether or not they passed the proviso but southern whites believed that even if Congress couldn't overturn Mexican laws, that the territories when admitted as states possessed the quote unquote unquestioned right to amend previous legislation, including laws relating to slavery. But as Southern whites thought that the immigrants to former Mexican territories would vote to reestablish slavery in the American Southwest, they would soon be disabused of this belief. In 1849, California petitioned for admission to the union as a free state and the balance of power between the North and the South really hang on the balance here. There are 15 free states and 15 slave states. And to put an end to the sectional controversy, Henry Clay famously proposed a compromise. To the South, he offered a much more stringent fugitive slave clause, and he didn't really offer that much else to the South. California would come into the Union as a free state according to the will of the people. And the remaining territories of Mexico weren't going to have any positive protections for slavery. In fact, Henry Clay insisted that, quote, slavery does not exist by law in any of the territory acquired by the United States from the Republic of Mexico, the same argument that had motivated the Wilma proviso. With California being admitted as a free state, that meant there were 16 free states and 15 slave states. And we can really see the 1850s as a number of events or that in the 1850s Southern politicians are doing everything they can to try to add more slave states to the Union so that they aren't totally outnumbered. In other words, they're trying to avert the loss of power that the Mexican-American War set into motion. Their efforts led to the failed annexation of Cuba in 1854, which still had slavery and would have been admitted as a slave state the overturning of the Missouri Compromise also in 1854, which would open the territory north of 3630 to slavery, and the birth of a new political party in the wake of the overturning of the Missouri Compromise, the Republican Party, whose success in the election of 1860 led to the outbreak of the US Civil War. To conclude, it's really easy to discount Mexico's anti-slavery stance given the coercion continued in so many other forms in Mexico. But Mexico's policies with respect to slavery had serious implications for human bondage in the United States. Mexico bordered the U.S. South, and not just any part of the U.S. South, the Deep South, where slavery was expanding most rapidly. And enslaved people escaped to Mexico with such frequency that Texas actually seemed to have more in common with the states that bordered the Mason-Dixon line than with other states like Mississippi and Alabama. Samuel Houston, then the governor of Texas, made those stakes clear on the eve of the Civil War. He wrote, quote, Texas is a border state. Mexico renders insecure her entire Western boundary. Close quote. Mexico's laws rendered slavery insecure, not just in Texas and in Louisiana, but throughout the United States, because the land seized from Mexico at the close of the Mexican American War was free territory. That territory included what is now most of modern day California, Utah, California, and Arizona. When Southern politicians attempted to establish slavery in that region, they ignited a sectional controversy that would eventually lead to civil war. Thanks so much. I'm really looking forward to answering some questions.
1: Thank you so much, Alice. All right, let's dive right in. Was Mexican anti-slavery a factor in causing the Mexican War? Was there any connection between the escaped slaves in Mexico and the San Piet- uh, Patricios? Hmm.
0: That's a great question. I didn't find any evidence that Mexico's anti-slavery was necessarily causing the Mexican-American War, that the annexation of Texas sort of started the process of leading towards civil war and the fact that James K. Polk wanted to secure the United States quote unquote manifest destiny by securing ports in the Pacific that I think that was motivating it more than Mexican anti-slavery. And then with respect to the San Patricios, that's a really good question. Again, it didn't come up in my research, but I, I wonder if um, you know, with further investigation, there might, you might see some connection between um, runaways and and the San Patricios? I'm, I'm not sure though, it's a great question.
1: What is the estimate of numbers uh, who escaped uh, to Mexico? How do you compare Mexico as a refuge for enslaved during the 19th century to the Spanish colony of Florida, which is also a refuge for enslaved people coming to, um, during the, uh, during the 18th century? Oh, great, great questions. So estimating
0: the number of enslaved people who escaped to Mexico is really hard for some of the reasons that I talked about, the, just finding the census or the, the data from Mexico is really hard to get. And so I, I have, if you go to my personal website, I have a long description of how I came at um, the estimate of 3,000 to 5,000. I would say that's a quite a conservative estimate. Um, but so I would say it's about that much. So it's significantly less than what's estimated of enslaved people going north to Canada. Um, but I think still quite quite a significant number from the perspective of of slaveholders in Texas and Louisiana. And then the second question was how this compares to the refuge promised by Spanish Florida. And in some respects, it's very similar that, and in some respects, it's different. or Spanish Florida and Mexico start off having offering similar sorts of protections to enslaved people, that they could come and claim their freedom under certain uh, situations. Like in Spanish Florida, there was a royal cedula that promised freedom to people who promised to convert to Catholicism and defend the Spanish crown. Um, in Mexico, we have enslaved people who can claim their freedom if they have been illegally imported. So there's this sort of conditional freedom if you, if you meet the conditions for that freedom. So I would say that, you, know, particularly in the 1820s, 1830s, um, into the 1840s, that the promise of freedom in Mexico and Spanish Florida was, was conditional conditional on certain, meeting certain requirements. But after Mexico adopts the freedom principle that promises freedom to all enslaved people without condition, the promise of freedom becomes much more expansive. Uh, You don't need to convert or take up arms or proclaim loyalty. Um, If you're an enslaved person and you set foot on Mexican soil, you have a legal claim to freedom.
1: Are there any slave narratives or documents written by Black uh, migrants into this area?
0: I wish, I wish, I looked, <laughs> I really, um, no, or I, not that I found, and there, and I still hold out hope that someone will find one. And we do have a lot of really great scholars who are working on this topic, who are going to be coming out with books, I hope, in the next couple of years. So keep an eye out for them. And maybe they will discover the the um, uh, the slave narrative of the enslaved person who escaped to Mexico. I think one of the reasons why there aren't in, uh, slave narratives of this particular um, escape route is because the slave narratives that were published by, you know, enslaved people like Frederick Douglass, they were supported and in many cases funded by the abolitionists in the Northeast and, or in the North in general. And in Mexico, while we do have abolitionists, it's less organized. Um, and so I think that, and and literacy is just lower in Mexico than it is in the United States. So I think those those factors contribute to why there's not um, sort of a literary complex for uh, the finding and and um, publishing these works. But I just there there are parts of this story that were really hard to tell because of the absence of sources that really were relying a lot on legal testimonies from enslaved people, and then accounts from, not from them, but from, you know, Mexican officials about what had happened, and which is a very frustrating. So anyways, I, I, if anyone knows of one, you have one in your
1: attic, um, I, I would love to see it which kind of rolls into the next question. Your description of the research process was fascinating. Could you elaborate how many stories are waiting to be uncovered in those archives?
0: Mm. I mean, I think there's a lot. I, went to 28 different archives and there are still archives that I hear about that I'm like, oh, I think maybe there might be something good there too. The archives in Mexico are incredibly amazing. And also this surprises people, incredibly well-organized. They are, uh, the Mexican government has spent a lot of money uh, creating these archives and, um, funding archivists to make finding aids, which make it easier for us to work in, in those archives. So they're really wonderful. Um, at the same time, for anyone who has done archival work, you often have to do a lot of sorting because unfortunately most of the time there isn't there isn't a category in the finding aid that says, you know, fugitive slaves to Mexico. So you have to sort through a lot, it's very time consuming. Um, and I'm really hoping that in the same way, as I mentioned at the beginning of the talk, that um, scholarship on Haiti and the importance of anti-slavery in Haiti really has expanded dramatically in, in the past 30 years or so. I'm really hoping that historians will really pay attention to Mexico too and start to help them um, help work through all of these archives that um, might have
1: something that I didn't get to go to. Great. I think we have uh, time for maybe two more questions. Um, How many Africans were enslaved in uh, Tejas when they revolted against the US in the 19, I'm sorry, the 1830s? Did they play any role in the revolts?
0: Oh, great question that I had to gloss over in the talk. So there were um, about 5,000 enslaved people in Tejas at the time of the revolution. Again, this is not an exact estimate because in the censuses that were being created by um, the Texans, they were not admitting to having enslaved people because then they would have to free them under um, the the laws of Colorado Texas, but around 5,000. And during the Texas revolution, um, President Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, who is the president of course, but who takes charge of the army that tries to defeat the Texans, the rebellious Texans. He issues a decree that promises freedom to any enslaved person from, from Texas who escapes to his lines. And so you have, um, you have enslaved people escaping to join the Mexican army. And so much so that as the Mexican army is marching towards Eastern te- Texas, where most of the plantations are located, Uh, Texans are deserting from the army in order to help take their families and their slaves eastward towards Louisiana because they do not want their enslaved people to have the opportunity to escape to Mexican lines. And I think that that fact can help us to understand why the Texans defended the Alamo, which um, there's there's a controversy going on in Texas right now (laughs) about whether the Alamo was a um I can't was it actually a military military was it militarily important that some someone had said it wasn't and um it is really important and that if they if the defenders of the Alamo had defeated the Mexican army at that point they would have prevented the Mexican army from getting anywhere near those plantations in eastern Texas and undermining
1: slavery there
0: so I think that once we take slavery into account the battle of the Alamo makes a lot
1: of sense yeah all right. Last question. Was there any, oops, sorry, was there anything analogous to the Underground Railroad helping slaves escape to the South?
0: There, so the Underground Railroad to the North is less organized than I think we often imagine in popular culture. They're, um, they're much less organized. Eric Foner has a great book um, that I think does a good job of explaining uh, called Gateway to Freedom, h- how organized the, it was. So it's it's you know, there aren't there aren't like handles in the window and quilts on the clothesline quite as much as we we think to the northbound underground railroad. There are these nodes of help in the southbound escape route. There is a Mexican ship captain who is indicted in Louisiana courts in the 1830s for helping an enslaved person escape from New Orleans by sea to Matamoros. Um, So we have these these little glimmers of evidence of how people could who were helping um, helping enslaved people escape. Um, And then I also think that. We can see the Mexican citizens who are fighting to protect enslaved people from their kidnappers and from their former masters as a kind of underground railroad too. That that's um, you know the the enslaved people have already escaped, but uh, to keep them there, that's a different sort of underground railroad. So it's 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 certainly different, um, a little bit less organized. Um, but I think no, no less astonishing. Um, and I just still, you know, thinking back, as I mentioned at the beginning of the talk to first coming across these documents, it's still even, even now, you know, eight, eight plus years of working on this. it still just amazes me, um, the courage of those enslaved people to
1: escape and, um, the courage of everyone who helped them along the way.